I think to amplify the possibility is the most important message and that anyone can turn their life around from, you know, hopeless to full of hope. From Deergo Collective, this is Responsibly Different, sharing stories of certified B corporations and our journey of joining them in leveraging business as a force for good. I'm Ben Marine. In this episode, Margot Walsh shared with me the ins and outs of MainWorks. MainWorks was the first B Corp in the state of Maine, certifying back in 2013 with a score of 112.6. MainWorks is an innovative employment company working to provide jobs to people who face barriers to workforce reentry, often the formerly incarcerated and those recovering from substance use disorders. Not long after starting MainWorks, Margot went on to start the Maine Recovery Fund, a nonprofit that helps people re-entering the workforce with everything else it takes to be set up for success, housing, clothing, food, and other support services. Margot's impact has caught national attention with features in the Huffington Post, Down East Magazine, and was even invited to the State of the Union Address by Senator Angus King in 2019. She's a leader in working to answer the question, what's next? for the formerly incarcerated and those in recovery. Awesome. Well, first, I, I want to welcome you to the show, Margo. Super excited to have you on. You're doing incredible work for our local community uh, here in Maine. And so I, I wanted to hear more about that. So you employ folks in recovery and in reentry. Can you explain to listeners kind of what that means and, and what it looks like? Sure, of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I wish you guys, every success as you like amplify these issues in Maine. So thank you. Um, my name is Margot Walsh. And in March of uh, 2011, I started a staffing company called MainWorks. And that was born of a lot of different things. But frankly, um, at the end of the day, what we do is provide employment for people who are struggling. And, and in that regard, there's a lot of people in Maine who are struggling. But at the essence, we bring people in to work who are um, in recovery from substance use disorder and in and reentry from jail and prison. But it had started out in the inverse. I started out as a prison reentry program, but I realized that everybody who I was dealing with had that um, co-occurring monkey on their back of some kind of substance use disorder. So I thought I could better amplify the problem by addressing the problem. The incarceration is a symptom of the fact that for some reason they became addicted to substances throughout their life for whatever reason. So we put everybody to work. We get them out and up and running. And typically we work in construction sector because the construction sector is frankly merit-based and not very um, concerned about your resume or your credentials. They just want you to show up and work hard and act right and go home at the end of the day and come back the next day. So we provide the employment. MainWorks is the employer. And then in 2017, we started a nonprofit called Maine Recovery Fund because the cost of getting to work, it sounds so easy if you have had a history of employment and you know what you're getting yourself into. But for people who are in that sort of hot mess transition, they need a lot of infrastructure. And so the, the 501c3 Maine Recovery Fund um, is the the bumpers if you're you know at a pool hall I mean a bowling you have those bumpers 
that's the bumpers and everybody needs them to get started. We have found. So that's what we do. That's awesome. And can you share with us a little bit about kind of what what are some of those barriers? People may be, you know, like you said, folks who have steady employment and have maybe never had a problem getting a job. Things that like most of us might not think about that are serious barriers for a lot of folks out there. And it starts with where are you sleeping? Do you have enough to eat? How are you getting there? And do you have what you need once you get there? So we help with access to continual sober housing. So, you know, we don't, we didn't start out that way, but it's evolved to say, okay, if there's a substance use issue, you need to be addressing that first. So you're going to live in a place that requires abstinence. We do have some people who don't fit that mold exactly. And maybe you're further along and no longer need that, but it's um, the good old adage of where are you sleeping? Do you have enough to eat? And do you, how are you going to get there? So um, housing, um, life issues of like sheets and bedding and stuff, then how are you going to get there? So it's a ride to work. And what do you need to bring with you? And so that is the proper outerwear for Maine, really good steel-toed work boots that are required at these construction sites. Those are a daunting expense. So we try to offset those expenses through Maine Recovery Fund, but it is predicated on immediate employment. So it doesn't say, here's your job, and then in six weeks, we'll put you out in the field. It's, you're going out today, and here's what you need. So have a great day. So it's very immediate, which I, which is what I have found really important. That's amazing. And the other thing that I found so fascinating is that, and you mentioned it, but I think it's worth emphasizing, you're the employer. Yes, that's the big difference. So can you kind of explain for folks who maybe aren't familiar with temp work or temp agencies why that distinction is so important. And I love that you asked that question so intentionally because here's the situation. When you have people who are newly in recovery, newly out of jail or prison, transitioning from whatever lifestyle into a more productive lifestyle, they are the most vulnerable people on the um, hierarchy of employment, right? So they are the least of the workforce. Therefore, the most easily exploited. And so the way that companies have traditionally used temp labor was to do the least of the work. So they would hire the temps to come and do all the grunt work. Like there may or may not be asbestos in that building, but we're going to put the temps in there to strip it. Now the workplace standards have grown and have become more rigorous. But traditionally, temps were the bottom of the barrel from the workplace standpoint. So I thought, how can I dignify that? And how can we create it so that they feel they have a place and a belonging and a continuity? Because what used to be temp agency was that you'd line up at the door, they check your, you know, shape of your bill to make sure you look like you could handle it. And then they'd send you out for the day. So that again, it's exploitive. It's really uh, taking advantage of people in a way that I found egregious. So I thought, okay, I'll be the employer and I'll make the decisions about where they go and what type of work they will do. So we've become kind of the prima donna of temp labor, (laughs) which is fine with me because um, in the end, you have an incredibly devoted group of people who know that you're not sending them out in order to make more money per guy, but that you're sending them out with their best interest of growth and development at the core. So then how does the the business side of it work? So so are the construction sites paying you for, or how does that, what does that look like? 
That's a great question. It is a fee-for-service business. The service we provide is well-equipped, ready-to-go, temporary labor. The service that they um, pay for then is the cost of employing that guy for the day. We also cover all of the other expenses related to our employment of that individual. So payroll taxes, um, paying into our, you know, um, workers' compensation, which is the big one, especially in the construction industry. So we take care of all of the expenses related to that individual for the course of an eight-hour day or a week or a month, hopefully for longer periods of time because it behooves that guy to know where he's going every day. Um, however, we'll keep them, even if he doesn't have a place to go tomorrow, we keep him employed in some capacity. So we continue that he doesn't have to suffer these ridiculous gaps just because we didn't have enough work for him for that day. The other thing is um, a traditional staffing model pays out every day at the end of the day. And that makes these guys really vulnerable to predatorial um, payroll check, check cashing and lending through places like name your uh, fast and ready cash on demand type place. I won't use any names, but there are a lot of them out there who will, you know, cash your paycheck. But since you, you know, don't have a bank account, it's going to cost you $5, you know, so there's a lot of that. So we, we take that off the table by paying weekly. So, and our clients just pay us weekly. So it's, that's how it works. We charge them for the cost of the guy for the day and they pay us at the end of the week. That's awesome. Rent a guy for the most part. <laughs> that's awesome. And something I noticed too, is that it, it sounds like predominantly men that come through the program, but do you ever get women coming through the program? Women are wonderful. We have some fantastic women who have worked really well, but there is a complexity of um, younger women who might be of, um, you know, having kids and needing special um, arrangements around a, a work schedule and that kind of stuff. So at the end of the day, we've definitely had wonderful women who've come through and done great. But once things start to settle out with um, other like reentry issues and family reunification, the women really spend a lot of time getting involved in the minutia of their child rearing and all those complexities naturally. Um, so it, it, it definitely works, but it gets more complicated as for any woman. And that's how I started Mainworks as a single mom, head of household. And so I needed to find something to do from 10 to two because I couldn't really do much beyond those hours as a mom. So it's a, it's a, t it's challenging. So I would, in fact, this is just an aside and I never talk about this. The name of my company was supposed to be 10 to two resources and it was only going to employ women. So, cause I thought there was a huge need for women like that. So, cause they can't, if you have to put your kids on the school bus and then get them at the end of the day and provide aftercare and all that stuff, the cost of that um, eliminates your ability to work really well. So I, I, that's how I wanted it. That's what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be called 10 to two resources. Oh my gosh. That's so wild. I'm so curious how, how what kind of, steered you towards the um, the recovery and reentry route from there? So at the same time as being, you know, in, that, in those days, being a single mom head of household, I was also volunteering at the wet shelter in Portland. And I loved it because I'm also in recovery, which is really important. So since 1997, but um, so I was working at the shelter volunteering and I also volunteered at the Cumberland County Jail pre-release program. When I was going into the pre-release program, there was all these young people, men and women, who were supposed to be in a work work ready program, but they were miserably underemployed because the CO at the time, a corrections officer, was very content to just send them across the street to Denny's 
or any burger joint because they needed workers over there, but they didn't consider anything about the individual's better interest. But it, it worked out the way it did. And I and I just saw that as a recruiter, I could find a better opportunity for these really capable people who were housed and fed and knew where they were sleeping. Those barriers were off the table. And now it's just a matter of getting them to a work. So I thought I'll call a couple of my construction friends and see if they need any help. That's how it all happened. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, and so, and then you also have, and you, you, as you mentioned, the main recovery fund, which is the nonprofit side. I'm curious what kind of, I just want to dig a little deeper insight, like what brought that to life and, and how does that interplay with main works today? I'm so glad you asked. So there is, I we're also a certified B Corp, which is a question that we might address down the, the road here, but it's very important because while I was doing this work, I thought someone needs to know about this or care about this because we're taking people who are otherwise perpetually unemployed and giving them this economic viability, right? So you would expect that the people who would be otherwise paying for this population would have taken interest and say, oh, I can see that. And so in the past 10 years, that type of thing is happening through impact investing, through pay for success models, through um, mission margin, B Corp basically is the gold standard. And so when I was Googling and looking, I found that B Corp was seal of approval that says you actually do what you say you do. So we are a company that cares. We are minimally profitable. So at the same time, we have this business that is minimally profitable, frankly, not profitable at all for probably the first five or six years. And we have this daunting expense of employing all these guys, which I was kind of doing out of, as a mom, I was giving the money out of my pocket. Oh, you need lunch. Oh, you need, you know, I was handing money out. My sister, who's a philanthropy advisor out in Wyoming, said, you got to change that. We've That stuff should be funded by public, private, whatever, funding. There's money out there for people in transition. How can we do it? And so I had no idea and I had no business in the world of nonprofits. So, And I wanted to keep my company. So I thought, okay, who does that? So we started looking around and we found out that Maine Recovery Fund could, in fact, swim right next to Maine Works given the population that they serve, the parameters were really in line. And so rather than sending, um, you know, Maine Recovery Fund was trying to help people get to work, they could send them to anywhere in, in the country rather than just to Maine Work. So it, for now, just to get started, it's been kind of Maine Works centric. But as we grow and expand, it's becoming a bigger entity, a dualistic organization working state to state. So it's a really good model, and I have more to say about that, but I won't bore you right now. <laughs> oh, I'm so curious, though. <laughs> what? So going state to state, so does that mean you're expanding beyond Maine in the in the foreseeable future? Yes, we already have. And so on paper, we have USA Works and the Recovery Fund. So my um, ask of the Department of Labor nationally, or anybody that cares, is we need to accept that traditional business and non the nonprofit sector are mutually exclusive and they have 
they, this incompatibility between making money and helping people is a fact of life. So how can we find a way to stitch those together, make money, help people, and have the government who's going to benefit by having tax burdens now paying taxes and offsetting the co- the devourous cost of further incarceration, you know, more social services for people in recovery, blah, blah, blah. So now we have a business outcome with nonprofit support. And naturally, I think that the government should say, wow, of course, because we're saving so much because of the work you're doing collaboratively, we should be at the table. And there, this trifecta needs to exist. And I am in the process of sculpting a message to that effect on the national level. And I mean it really seriously. That is my mountaintop. If I can, you know, because we've won a lot of awards as a company and everyone gives us all this attention, which is great. It's nice to have a window full of little jemmy toys and things. It's great. And I don't begrudge it. But I just think that we need to accept that there is indeed an incompatibility between the private and the public sector. And how are we going to intentionally pull those together? That's my, and that's not exclusive to me. That's the world of impact investing. But investing implies that you need the money. We don't need the money. We can keep running along without any kind of investment because we can make money through our business model. But it would be nice if someone wanted to lift it at a macro level to say, and here's the X number of dollars to help you quickly, you know, replicate and scale. But replicating and scaling isn't necessary for me to have a a normal, comfortable life. I'm not looking for any grand existence, but we could change a lot more lives if we had a conduit at the, and buy into that trifecta. That's really cool. I'm curious for folks who are listening and are like, oh my gosh, I want to support this effort somehow. What are some of the best ways that people can get involved and and support that work? So there is this, um, movement in the world um, of impact investing, kind of reshaping how we do capitalism. And I think to educate yourself about that, because um, a B Corp, for example, is supposed to be able to demonstrate our impact on both a social and environmental level. It's like a, um, a, a seal of approval that says you've been audited, you've been vetted. Yes, you do what you say. And so, because there's a lot of opportunities for people to want to grab that accolade and then ride the tide of social impact when in fact they are, you know, maybe a huge petroleum company that now does a little tiny thing of solar and then they leverage the solar thing. And it's like, but wait, you're still the one that spilled the oil and the X, Y, Z, you know, historically, we know what you're doing here. So B Corp um, vets and examines all of your books and your outcomes and everything. So having that accolade, I think people really need to learn about um, the way forward in that in that context, like become educated about B Corp, become educated about who are you because B Corp is really important in terms of consumers. So if you have a choice to go to um, Patagonia, right, or any other outdoor clothing company, who has the impact? What's going on behind the scenes? And become educated about that because Patagonia was the premier and first B Corp, and they are actually a certified B Corp, which says. They consider their impact on society and the environment in every decision. It's in the ethos and the eco, it's in the entire other DNA as an organization. And, and I have to shout out to some of the main base B Corps, you know, Coffee by Design, 
Revision Energy, great friends, great buddies of ours. And recently, and to great success, Andrew Scoggin Bank is a main-based bank that just said, we want to be a B Corp. And they had to go through rigorous uh, vetting process to get a financial institution certified as a B Corp, um, understanding that they have a priority of making money, of course. How do you do that? And Mascoma Bank, we have an advocate called uh, named Todd Batchelder, who's kind of wrangled this whole group of us together to say, let's make Maine um, a, an outpost of productivity versus, you know, in terms of B Corp. So, because we've kind of lumped ourselves in with Massachusetts, um, the Boston B community. So it's a really cool thing. So I would say definitely become educated about those two things and have an opinion about what you buy and why you buy it. That's awesome. That's so great. I'm, I'm curious, what has been some of the most challenging parts of both launching Mainworks and Main Recovery Fund and kind of where you are today? I personally have had the opportunity to build a business from the ground up with all of its travails. With, and it's a, an anomalous business. It's a social employment company for people who are struggling. And wow, there are so many other people that struggle. So how could we do this in my lane, yet see the swimming pool full of other people who struggle and who need services and all that? So I think it's the the dichotomy of a private business doing my own thing in my own swim lane while watching the challenges and the struggles that um, other social employment companies of people like who are really struggling, like God bless the people at places like Goodwill. They are trying to employ people who are, you know, sort of very difficult to employ. So those have their merit, but I, I've just had my own little entrepreneurial challenges as an entrepreneur starting a business in Maine, there's just a lot to do. And especially the other thing I'll point out is an entrepreneur is usually focused on the outcome that they feel comfortable that they can attain. They have not considered, or maybe they have, and I just didn't, the complexity of what it takes to run a business, especially as you grow. So there's all this back office, you know, which is the key, which is the, the, the success of the business is predicated on the whatever's happening at the nucleus, which is your operations. So learning about all of that has been really an eye opener. And there's been some great organizations that have helped along the way. SCORE in Maine, just one chapter of the year, Maine chapter of the year. It's amazing at the national level. And so Nancy Stroni and her team at SCORE are fantastic. Um, places like, like um, Greenlight Maine is another sh- Shark Tank style uh, program that helps you articulate your business strategy and then pitch it because investors are only interested in making a lot of money. There's no other way to say that. So even angel investors, it sounds like they might have this altruistic mindset. No, they still need to see that your business is going to be profitable. And it's really hard to go from startup to profit. You know, that's a huge leap. So those have been the challenges, very realistic challenges related to starting a business, I would say those. And then also the perception um, and trying to wrangle this concept of everyone needs to know about, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So government, nonprofits, and private industry need to work collaboratively. Kind of the flip side of that coin, I'm curious, what have been some of the most rewarding moments of this journey? Oh, man. Okay. So without 
without it being said, the challenges of this has been the profound loss that we have experienced as a community because of the opioid pandemic. So before COVID, we used to gather every morning in a big round circle, which is the essence of who we are. So it was, you know, in the parking lot, really scrappy parking lot of my building in Portland, big circle of guys, first and women, first thing in the morning, you know, when we would talk about, um, you know, what do you want to do? What did you want to be when you were little? What's your wildest dream? We'd go around the circle every morning and just say a couple of words of support, whatever. And then the, you know, the, the daunting, overwhelming loss, I realized that every single person in that circle has known or loved at least three to five people who have taken their own life through substance use disorder or lost their lives to substance use disorder. I think that's a fine line, frankly. So that has been a challenge, but the coolest part of it has been that. So, and, and the feeling of like um, kinship and unity And we have one guy from South Sudan who is a new American, was incarcerated, alcoholic, and definitely other substances. But he comes to the circle every morning, um, having joined us wearing his prison outfit on the day that he started. That was the clothing that he had on his back. So we got him all bustled and organized. But at the circle, around a fire every single morning, he said, this circle is how I grew up in the jungle in South Sudan, my village lived and managed ourselves and died and loved around this fire. And so he really reminded us of how in our ancient DNA, we have that proclivity towards gathering and checking in with each other. And also this is where restorative justice comes from that if you offend the group, you cannot be banished for life. You'll die. So how do you bring people back and hold them accountable, but also give them an opportunity and make room for them around the circle? And when sometimes we'll get a, you know, a prodigal son will come wandering back and we'll make room for him at the circle. And I think it sounds crazy and sort of a spiritual way, but it is the most unbelievable thing to see him feel like he doesn't um, have to be ostracized or left out he's welcome back we do the best we can um doesn't mean he's ready to work that day but it just means that he had the confidence and the love in his heart somewhere that he felt like he'd come back to main works so that's my best part that's amazing that's beautiful and thank you for for sharing that and i think it speaks volumes at like knowing all of the awards and the accolades and like being at inaugurations and all, all of these kind of you know, what one would imagine is very fancy things, right? That, that those precious private moments have been the highlight is, is really beautiful. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. Thank you. Um, Working with folks on reentry and recovery, and especially where you're working on that national level uh, to find kind of in in your words, macro solutions to, to some of these systemic problems. I'm curious, what are some common questions that get asked of you that you're like, oh my gosh, like, let's just get everybody on the same page and understand this like one thing. Oh, that's a really good question. That's a great question because they, um, there are the local obstacles, which are really practical. Like how during COVID, all the taxi companies shut down except for one. And we also have this really limited Uber world in Maine. So practical transportation. And then people expect, oh, why don't you just get a van? 
Well, that's because Maine is so laid out in all these different places. So for all the um, practical questions, there's always, you know, and I feel like I've been doing this for a long time now. I have answers to most of the questions, but there also can be very frustrated because I, I feel like, you know, I frustrated in that um, a van is not the answer. Six vans is not the answer. You know, so, so we, and the other questions that come up are, so what are your obstacles, which is clear, and especially as we get further out in Maine, which is why I think there needs to be some government support here, because why as a business would I go to Dover Foxcroft, Maine? There's no reason in the world for me to do that. But if I had someone, you know, as a wingman up there that's being funded by, you know, X, Y, or Z, then it would make sense. So the challenges are transportation and the wide, wide, um, layout of Maine. That's not to say there's not construction happening at Dover Foxcroft. It's just not from a business standpoint. It doesn't make sense to be there. Um, people will say, well, how do you work with all of these opioid task force, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I'll come back and say, well, they're healthcare oriented. They're not employment oriented. So, you know, that's not a natural synergy for us because they are, they're trying to help people not die, right? In those healthcare oriented things. And then furthermore, why don't you go to DOL or doesn't DOL help or anything? All of those government programs, in my experience, have been about soft skills training, resume building. Here's a career fair. It's not immediate. And we are here to provide immediate access to funding, money, through your own efforts, economic viability. So, you know, payday advance, we don't like to do it. We don't do it really as a matter of course, but we'll give a guy a gift card so he can go and buy lunch. Cause if you don't have lunch, you can't worry about your resume. It's so basic. And this is the bigger problem. People who start companies are usually not starting a company at the ground level and learning from that kind of ground level experience, especially when it involves people. So, you know, who would start a company like this, frankly, it's a really crazy, it's a, it's a stretch. Um, and so those are the things that frustrate me is there's a misunderstanding about what we do, even, and I'll go on one more second in the world of social impact bonds or impact investing, you have these people who are willing to put in their money, but the organization that they're seeking to fund is flawed. In, in, in many cases is flawed because they haven't been brought up on the rigor of investment standards. Does that make sense? So when you bring Wall Street and social enterprise together, they're, they're antithetical. Totally. You need someone running that business, social or not, like a business person, not like a saint. So it's hard. Thinking of it from the business side, what are things that businesses can be doing in terms of helping to create opportunities for Folks that typically don't have access to employment, like the recently incarcerated or folks, you know, struggling with substance abuse and so on. Call MainWorks. That's how they can help. Because taking that on on their own, I, if I hear one more company saying, oh, well, we have a corporate, in, you know, initiative going about like inclusivity and helping people who are in recovery. And all I can think is, You've got to be kidding. There's no way. It goes back to that mutual incompatibility. You can't allow a heroin addict to show up at work every day with people around him knowing that he's an active addict or recently in recovery. Those things are just fraught with challenges. 
And someone coming out of jail or prison who hasn't worked a job pretty much ever, or even if they did, it was just for a short period of time, life interrupted by jail or prison. They're not just coming out in a normal, you know, laissez-faire, off I go to work kind of way. They're coming back with, you know, a, a yoke around their neck of complexity, social, economic, you know, situational, everything about someone's life is brand new. So the best way you can serve those people is to provide them with the support that we offer at MainWorks, period. And I've actually thought about that as working with like employee assistance programs and saying, don't take that on by yourselves. Why don't you guys just call me? We'll do it. We'll help them. We'll meet them where they are. We'll engage them as an addict, one addict to another. We're not going to, you know, molly coddle people who are trying to have it both ways, frankly. And if you're an active addict, you're living a lifestyle that is not conducive to full-time employment. I'm not talking about drug dependence if someone's on a long-term medication for pain. That's different. I'm talking about the house on fire addict. You can't expect the same results from people who are coming at it from a very different, broken, broken-hearted. They need to they need to be in rehab, not at work, really. And we'll tell them that. So it sounds like it's so it's and this sounds accurate. So it sounds like really it's about setting these folks up for success, and maybe businesses aren't thinking through all that's required to set someone up for success. Does that sound right? Why would they? They don't have any. They're not. It's not in their structure. I've worked in a lot of companies, really, really, really good companies, and they have an employee assistance program. You call a number, you get help immediately. That kind of stuff. But, um, and, and I'm not talking about a lot of white collar, you know, someone that might be working for 15 or 20 years in the same role and then ends up as, you know, needing help with their alcoholism. That's the appropriate EAP program. But if we're trying to fill this labor shortage right now with people from recovery or reentry, you're not going to be successful because their attrition is about 100% unless they have support in place, specific, intentional, individualized know what you're talking about, that kind of support in place, and then someone to hold them accountable, not just hope that they're going to show up tomorrow. Is there, if there are folks that are listening that maybe aren't here in Maine or, you know, or maybe you're listening from Seattle or someplace in California, wherever, right? And they're thinking, okay, that sounds really cool. I want to hire somebody like Maine Works, but I'm not in Maine. Do you have resources for folks or or can you point people to things that can kind of help? Like if, if somebody has a similar vision to yours, um, ways that they can either work with you or get re- get remote support in terms of being set up for success. That's a great question. Absolutely, and um, it was very funny because one of this one of the highlights of my ten years and one of the most challenging of the last ten years was um, in 2016 on Labor Day weekend on Sunday. There was an article in the New York Times about MainWorks in the labor in the in the in the uh, business section. We were, I mean, that was such an such an honor. I couldn't believe it. But anyway, because, you know, think about that, like Labor Day weekend, Sunday, everyone reads the paper. And we were inundated with people saying, how can I do this? I really want to. It sounds awesome. How do you do it? Can I do it in Albuquerque? Can I do it in Spokane? You know, all these places. And, you know, all we can say is um, we're, we're coming. <laughs> we're on we're on the way. But moreover, um, if anybody has any particular interest, they, I welcome them to email me or call me at the numbers on our website. It's mainworks.us um, for a conversation because um, it's we take 
the reason we are not at a national level yet is that every state and every major metropolitan area has their own uh, particular challenges and opportunities. And what's right in Portland, Maine is not necessarily right in Portland, Oregon. So there's going to be some challenges and differences. So it has to, it's not a one size fits all thing. It's not a, we can't duplicate by offering franchises. We just are thinking we'll allow, we'll find a person who can work in the field. Um, a lot of times it's someone in recovery who's had this lived experience. We're all in recovery at MainWorks, the whole operations team. Um, and then can say, okay, I can see how I can connect the dots between a sober house manager and then I can also talk to the construction company. So it needs to be someone who has that kind of facility with meeting and greeting people on both sides of that. But if people have practical questions about any of the things that I'm saying, they're welcome to contact me directly. Awesome. And I'll make sure that all of that lands in the show notes too. So folks have like a quick spot where they can see all the, Thank you. All the links and contact info there. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I kind of want to circle back to B Corp land. You, you meant you touched on it. You certified back in 2013 I think you had a score of 112, which is amazing uh, for folks maybe who are listening for the first time. You need at least a score of 80 to to kind of pass the bar there. And and most folks come in like 80.1, <laughs> right? Like just just getting over it because it's, it's tough. It's a very challenging, rigorous assessment for sure. Um, what advice do you have for folks that are you know, maybe ankle deep in the assessment or perhaps considering becoming B Corp certified? Um, Okay. So I would highly recommend it because what you can do is you can take your B Corp interview, your B Corp assessment results and manage your business to it. So it's invaluable. It's a fantastic tool and really cool community, frankly. Um, But I'm worried about other organizations propping up and starting to say that they will also do a more um, lenient assessment, or maybe it just needs to be social and not environmental. I mean, B Corp is the gold standard as of right now. And I just want to give a shout out to the importance of maintaining the integrity of B Corp as that standard, because we, we all have the problem of getting lost in these acronyms and everyone, you know, the imposters that come up, um, aren't necessarily um, going to be able to provide the same standards as B Corp. So it's really hard. You feel like you have someone living in your you know, workspace, looking at everything, but it, there's only, only good things can come from that. So I would definitely encourage it. Um, we were the first B Corp in Maine, We also, which was interesting. And then the other thing that was really cool is that here's an example of um, collaboration the very conservative associated general contractors in Maine is an organization that does a lot of the um, um, lobbying on behalf of the construction industry, right? Which tends to be very business focused, of course. And so the AGC executive director, Matt Marks, got together with um, MainWorks to say, how can we promote and create the language to present um, B Corp legislation to the state of Maine. So in 2017, uh, it was vetoed because anything that was being presented um, by a Democrat at the time was vetoed by our former governor. And it's important because the woman who presented it, it couldn't be more inclusive of everybody in the, in the legislature. And then we just pat- went up again to Augusta in 2017. 20- 
19 and B Corp legislation was passed into law, which is just to say that Maine is on board with this. You know, I think it's really important. So I'm all for B Corp and urge people to learn more about it. Any, uh, anything, any, any kind of final thoughts you want to make sure people hear about? Yeah. I, thank you so much again, Ben. I want people to understand that in order for any of this to work, you, you can't just have a couple of do-goody companies doing this and then everybody else is off rogue pursuing capitalism in its traditional sense. Because as a world, as a society, that doesn't get us anywhere. And so we have to take the largest daunting problems that face our generation and address them. And so I think that we should actually move into, um, I think, you know, one of my heroes in this world said there should be the cost of the um, impact of these social and environmental problems should be published on a list, top 10 problems and how much it costs us. Cause that will motivate people, right? So to publish the cost of how much all of this costs, which is unbelievable. If people knew how much this stuff costs, they would be furious that they're paying taxes to support this. Right? So, and then for those of us who are willing to be out there getting measured, our measurement goals should be listed, should be like you said, okay, what was your score? Because we are a competitive society. What was your score? Do you, did you get scored? And everyone should get scored. So without that, we're just, you know, and I think it's coming towards a time when people are going to be more willing because of the level of desperation growing. So, you know, especially when you start to have kids and you look around and say, oh, this is our heritage. This is the legacy. These oceans in this condition is what I'm leaving my kids for. You know, I, I think we're all going to start to hear the music and realize that we don't have a lot of time. And so how do you transfer intentions into action immediately, which is what I would say we need to do. That's amazing. I, I do have one more question I, I meant to ask earlier, and I'm just realizing now, if folks are listening to this who are maybe coming out of the the prison system or are, are struggling with addiction or looking for work, how do they, how do they get into your program? Um, each state is going to be different. So it depends on where they are physically in the country. And also what I will say is that a lot of these problems, and especially in Maine, where we have a pretty progressive um, commissioner of corrections, Randy Liberty, understand that we have to go further upstream to try to fix some of these problems. So hopefully there will have been some programming in the prison system for these individuals. Hopefully there has been some you know, case management as they're getting closer to their date of being released. So people who are right out and right on the street, all I can say is you've got to find a place to live first. And if you happen to have a history of drugs or alcohol and you feel like it's a problem or it could contributed in any way to the reason you got arrested, then that's the bear that needs to be addressed first. And there's a lot of sober housing available in this country now, tons. So you want to find a reputable sober house and someplace like Maine Recovery Fund could help you with the you know first week's rent so that you're not wondering about how you're going to pay that. So we could definitely talk to people who are committed. So I, I love the questions that you're asking. It's really productive. I think to amplify the possibility is the most important message and that anyone can um, turn their life around from, you know, hopeless to full of hope. And the stories that we have to demonstrate that are 
each one is worthy of, you know, a documentary. You wouldn't believe it. It's cool, but it's hard work and it takes a village. It totally does. Thank you so much for joining us today. To find links to learn more about MainWorks and the Main Recovery Fund, stop by the show notes at responsiblydifferent.com. Also in the show notes, I have links to other resources for you to check out as well. So definitely stop by and and take a peek at those. Another quick update on our B Corp journey. With the support of the UNHB Impact Clinic, we are doing a deep dive into our vendor list to better understand our supply chain. We work with over 185 different vendors to service our clients' local, regional, and national media campaigns. So sorting through that has been quite the feat. Uh, We're also working on a list of media vendors that we've identified as responsibly different on behalf of our clients so that they can extend their responsible business practices even further by choosing a percent of their media buys being allocated to media vendors that fit within our criteria for a responsibly different company. Kind of like impact investing, but with media dollars. Stay tuned. We'll have more info on that uh, coming as we get that sorted. Next time on Responsibly Different, I sit down with the founder of United by Blue, Brian Linton. What you decide to spend your money on and focus on shows your values more than anything. Well, I want to thank you again for tuning in today. If you're enjoying this content, subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're all in this together. Till next time, be responsibly different. This is a production of Deergo Collective. Music composed by our own Kevin Oates. You can follow us on social media at Deergo Collective or visit our corner of the internet at deergocollective.com.